0: I want to start with some words from the prayer book, the collect we use for Good Friday. Good Friday is our day of redemption, a day when we celebrate God bringing good out of evil, light out of darkness, life out of death, and joy out of suffering. And if I've got a message to deliver today and next Sunday, that's it. It's the message of hope and redemption amidst great, great tragedy. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Dear loving and gracious God, let the whole world see and know that things which were cast down are now being raised up, and that things which had grown old are being made new, and that all things are being brought to their perfection by him through whom all things were made, your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Can you hear me okay now? I can hear myself. From the years 1995, 1997 until 2008, I was the executive assistant to the rector of Trinity Church Wall Street and chaplain to the staff. Now you have to remember that Trinity Church Wall Street is rather large. It had almost 300 employees at that time in history not only its employees on the payroll, but all the ancillary groups like security guards and janitors who came in. Uh, I was the chaplain to this group, and it was my job to marry them and to bury them and to counsel them and to get to know them, and it was one of the most exciting experiences I've ever had. I ran with people I would have never ever run with, and got to know them intimately as a priest does in all sorts and conditions and eclecticisms. It was really something. Trinity Church Wall Street uh, began its services in Manhattan as the second church in town in 1696. It borrowed its constitution almost completely from Saint Mary Lebeau in London and it still operates by that constitution. By what used to be called a gentleman's agreement, we don't say that much anymore. It agreed to it agreed to agree with the Episcopal Church when it came into being in 1789. Uh, before that, um, it was sort of on its own. It has some peculiarities thanks to that particular constitution. One thing is vestry terms. Have any of you ever served on a vestry at Trinity Cathedral? Uh huh. You're shaking your head and laughing. Your terms are three years at Trinity. They're seven years, and they can exceed succeed one another. So you can serve as many as fourteen years on the vestry. If you are senior warden, you're allowed to serve fourteen years per term, and you can serve up to twenty eight years. That's a long time. And the reason is continuity. It is such a complex organization. Not only as a church, but it has 45 other departments. A retirement center, a great ministry to the homeless, a conference center in Connected, a, a, an incredible communications center, and the list goes on and on and on. It sports a budget these days of five or six hundred million dollars. And when I was there, I used to think, well, I used to be the rector of Harrison, Arkansas, and our annual budget was $32,000, so there's... (laughs) I couldn't even think about the zeros up there. I was a, a lost ball in high weeds for a good long time. Trinity Church has made a number of significant excursions and incursions into the role of the history of the United States. It's had some notable vestry people in the past. One is Alexander Hamilton who is on your $10 bill, and another one is Robert Fulton who invented the steamboat, and there are many others there in the churchyard. Uh, It's been there serving that particular location for all of these years. 1703, the Queen of England gave it 250 acres in Manhattan to develop, and it still owns a portion of that. It's called the Patrimony. It probably should have been called the Matrimony given given her gift, but now it has 28 buildings in the Wall Street area with almost 80,000 square feet of rentable space. It has become the largest commercial real estate operation in the city of Manhattan. It has the best music program in town. It has a hospitality like no one would believe. It opens its doors to anyone and everyone. And because of the life we live right now, it also has a machine like we have at the airport to check security as you walk through the door. And the thing we used to say about Trinity, which was our chief evangelical tool, we joked, was that it had two large public bathrooms. (laughs) Have you ever tried to go to the bathroom in New York City? It is impossible. Trinity had the wise idea of opening these two gigantic bathrooms, and the tour buses began coming in (laughs) droves. On Sunday morning, we used to laugh at the people who would come in in the middle of the service stand at the back. And a lot of them had little hats on and masks on and all kinds of things. And they would look up there and see the incense wafting into the clouds and the music blaring. And I'm sure they went home and said, we went to a cult today in (laughs) Manhattan. It also had air conditioning, which in New York City was really, really important. On September the 11th, 2001, I came to work every day as I always did on the express train, the two or three if you know the metro system in New York City. I lived at Riverside Drive and 93rd Street, and I always walked down to the 96th Street and Broadway Station, got on the express train, and it took me all the way to Chambers. And that day, it was full of people as it always is. I got on about 8.25. It was a very cold day, given what, that hot summer that we'd had. The first day when any of us wore jackets or sweaters. And that figured so prominently in what I'm going to describe to you in just a moment. The train took us to Chambers Street, which is down in lower Manhattan. It's where you get off the express train, walk across the, the deck, and get on the local train in order to go to our local stop. My local stop was Rector Street. Uh, many of the names of the rectors of Trinity Church, and in fact the name of the boss himself, are listed as, as particular stops down in that part of Manhattan. Trinity has had such an impact on that area of life. As we rolled into Chambers Street getting ready to get off the train, the conductor said, And he said it in a rather poised tone of voice. He says, there's been an incident at the World Trade Center. Get off the train. A few seconds later, he said, get off the train. And then at the top of his lungs, get off the train. And all of these people, we were squeezed in the car, began to get off the train. And they began going up the stairs right into harm's way. And something terrible happened to them moments later. There were about six of us on the car. I was in the middle trying to get out. And we heard the conductor say, get back on the train. Get back on the train. So six of us got back on the train. And we made the local stops. We went to Cortland Street right underneath the World Trade Center. And the next stop was to be Rector. Only that day, we skipped Cortland Street. And as he said in the New York Times the next day, the conductor who was interviewed, he said, I drove the train as fast as I've ever driven a subway train in Manhattan because I knew that there was great danger. And we went through that. It was just a blur, and people were saying, why didn't we get to stop? We got out of Rector Street, and I walked up the stairs. And instead of being that bright, beautiful, clear day, the, the, the sky was, was full of debris. And it was very, very cloudy, and there were people rushing from that particular area down Greenwich Street to Liberty Street, where you could stand and see the two towers. A friend of mine from the real estate company, again, Trinity has the biggest real estate in the city of Manhattan, my office was next to his, we became great friends, he said, Stuart, a tiny plane has just hit one of the towers, let's go down and see. Well, like a fool, I always do things like this. I said, oh, let's go. Let's go see what's happening. So we ran down to the corner of Liberty and Greenwich and we watched, I believe it was the South Tower. I may have gotten the two confused at the moment. We watched the South Tower and wondered how in the world a small Cessna 152 had caused such a holocaust in the sky, Three floors were ablaze, something terrible had gone on. And yet people were reassuring each other, you know, reassurance never reassures. They were saying, "Oh, it's OK. It was a small plane. All will be well. All will be well in a matter of moments." Well, as we edged closer to the building at two months, at two minutes to nine o'clock. Many of you were watching television at that time. The unthinkable occurred, the unimaginable. That second jet, 767 Boeing jetliner, traveling at a speed of, 7 let's see, 587 miles an hour, came from the west, hit the tower under which we were standing, and at the last second, The pilot knew how to change the attitude of the plane so that it would maximize the strike. The plane went in that way rather than this way. An enormous holocaust in the sky, an ear-splitting explosion the likes of which I've never heard in my life. Debris began falling, jet fuel ignited part of Liberty Street, a bus was on fire, there was chaos... And yet people were standing there just like I'm standing before you today like mannequins looking up into the sky. And the woman next to me said the most amazing thing. She asked a question that I'll take with me for the rest of my life. She said, is this a setting for a movie? And I said with just as much poise and just as much uh, blasé attitude, yes, I think it is. What were we doing waiting for Bruce Willis to appear? Uh, Somebody to come and save us. And I think what we were, the reality was so painful and so unimaginable to take in that we were steeped in that human dynamic that is called denial. Remember what denial is? Refusing, let's see, sincerely believing that which is not true denial is refusing to acknowledge what in my heart I know to be true. So there we stood like mannequins until this friend who took me to the disaster shook me physically by the scruff of my neck, this side of my black suit. You know at Trinity we had to wear black suits all the time. We never were allowed to wear any other thing because that old constitution and canon said that's what we should wear. So I had it on. Uh, he shook me and he said, "He shook me until my teeth rattled," and he said, Stuart, run for your life." And indeed, somehow, somehow as an adverb that's a synonym for God, somehow it dawned on me that I was in trouble and needed to run. And I ran into the basement of the American Stock Exchange, which was right down the street, about half a block. And there were all these people in there crying and carrying on. And I said to the policeman, I work next door at Trinity Wall Street. And he said, you've got to get there fast. Go over now. So I walked into the office building of Trinity Church Wall Street. 25 floors, 300 plus employees in that particular building. They were coming down in elevators and on the stairs in droves. They were in state of confusion and chaos. Some were weeping. Some had no idea what was going on, nor did any of us. And the rector was seated at the security guard's desk, and he spotted me, and he spotted the organist. The organist, by the way, was Owen Burdick, who is now at St. Agnes in Washington, D.C., and just one of the great organists in the universe He spotted the two of us and said, I want you all to get over to the church right now. People are streaming down Broadway. They're looking for safety and security and solace and sanctuary. And I've often thought to myself, those are the very things the church provides when it's at its best. We open the doors to anyone if we are Episcopalians. This is a house of prayer for all people, as this cathedral has proclaimed for over a hundred years. So there they were. They were coming in. The organist said to Dr. Matthews, he, he growled when he was mad at us. I was on the 24th floor. His office was on the 25th. I was his executive assistant. And he would scream down the, down the, down the circular stairway sometimes, Stuart, get up here. And I thought, oh my God, what have I done now? What have I said? But he would say things like, Stuart, I've, I've got to go to London tomorrow. I've got to meet with the mayor of London. I want you to go instead. And I said, well, what am I supposed to do? I don't know. Just go. Just go. Here are the tickets. And there I went. That was, that was life at Trinity. And I look back on it with a lot of euphoric recall. At the time, it was uh, some, sometimes quite painful. He said, I don't care what you do over there. Just get over there and deal with that crowd of people. So there we went. And we crossed a pedestrian bridge over Church Street, separating that big street from the church building itself. These days, there's a lot of traffic on that. It's dangerous for parishioners to go back and forth, so they built a very expensive pedestrian bridge. And the taxes on that per year are equal to Trinity Cathedral's budget, I do believe. We got over, we went into the sacristy, and we did what I think was one of the dumbest things I've ever done in my life. But I had something on my mind. Your, your, your memory carries wonderful things and they come out when you need them the most. Uh, we, put on, we put on vestments to go to the disaster. We heard people were coming into the church. I put on a cassock and surplice, and the organist did the same. And uh, I had in my hands a book of common prayer, which is a great thing to carry to a disaster. Please carry one. <laughs> this had just come in the mail the week before. It was from Navigation Press, and it was sent out to all the clergy in the land as a freebie. It was called the, It's called The Message. It is a translation-paraphrase of the Holy Bible. So I had that with me, and I had a hymnal with me. And I guarantee you I couldn't have taken three better things to a situation than those three. So we went into the church, Owen got on the organ bench on that gorgeous, gorgeous Skinner organ, which was utterly destroyed not too much longer later, and I went to the chancel crossing just about where the dean gave announcements this morning, but I stepped down into the congregation, and there we extemporaneously did a service of scripture reading, hymn singing, and prayers. And if you've got prayers like this, and if you've got hymns like the kinds we have, that anyone and everyone can sing, and if you've got a scripture that can really assure people and not reassure, but speak the word with authenticity and strength and power, then you've got a lot going for you at that moment. And if your adrenaline is at a high level, it's amazing what things you can put together and assemble at the last second. So I started. I started the event by saying, "As we are all are gathered together, let us say. Let me say a prayer and ask God to be with us as we endure these moments." It's the prayer for quiet confidence. It's in the prayer book, and this is my own adaptation. After I prayed it, something amazing happened. It's never happened to me in 46 years of priesthood, but it happened that day. I said, the Lord be with you, which was foolish because no one said a word when I said that. O God of peace, who has taught us that in returning and rest, we shall be saved. In quietness and confidence shall be our strength. That praise from the book of the prophet Isaiah. Lift us, we pray you, to your presence where we may be still and know that you are God. That you are closer to us than the breath we breathe. And always doing for us far better things than we can ever ask or imagine. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Well, no one said amen, but a man on the front row did the unimaginable. He said, do it again. Now at the 1115, the service, when I do the collect, after the collect, I can imagine what would happen if someone stood up and said, do it again. <laughs> so I thought, oh yes, that's really good. Let's do it again. Lift us, we pray you, to your presence, O oh God, where we can be still and know that you are God, that you are closer to us than the breath we breathe, and always doing for us despite what we say, what we hear, what we believe, what we feel far better things than we can ever ask or imagine. That's the way Episcopalians pray. So I said other prayers and was interspersing them with scripture. I I did a wonderful job of recollecting hymns. I used to know all the hymns in the old hymnal, the 1940 hymnal by name and number. I don't know it in the new one yet, but during boring sermons sometimes I try to memorize these things. (laughs) There are no boring sermons here. (laughs) Now, I had a crowd of people the likes of which you have never seen in your life as a congregation. They were anything and everything. Eclectic understates it. I'm sure there were Muslims, Sikhs, Hindus, Zoroastrians, Christians, agnostics, atheists, and and a whole bunch of others. But we were all knit together in that one communion and fellowship, and there we were singing together. It really surprised me when I said our first hymn will be What a Friend We Have in Jesus. And that congregation burst forth like you wouldn't believe. Everybody seems to know that. And we sang Nearer Mike. We sang Abide with Me, uh, and they knew that particular song. We sang Rock of Ages. And as the day worsened, I was so tempted to sing Onward, Christian Soldiers. I was ready to go and fight the devil, who was obviously in our midst. And I'm sorry we've dismissed that hymn. That's a good hymn, and I think it needs to stay sometimes. We had a little supplemental hymnal in the pew rack that was used for what I called our Hop Along Jesus services. And at one... Pardon me. At one point I said, our next hymn, from that particular little hymnal, would be, Nearer, My God, to Thee. Well, that man on the front row, he said, No, not that one. (laughs) Are you old enough to remember the first rendition of the Titanic movie? As the boat was going down into the drink, the little brass band up there in the front of the boat was playing, what? Nearer my God to thee. And I shifted into high gear and I said, oh, you're right, you're right. Our next hymn will be, oh God, our help in ages past. Now, an amazing spiritual consolation happened as we turned to that hymn and began singing it. I hope you heard what we did this morning with the choir. They sang, Raith Williams, Oh, how amiable are thy dwellings! And it ended with, Oh God, our help in ages past. That is an Anglican hymn, If ever there was one. And as we were singing the first verse, just think about this. Put it in context. It was dark black outside. Sirens were roaring. Thanks to the new HVAC system at Trinity Church, ashes were pouring in. Those who had on dark clothes were covered. It looked like nuclear winter at times inside the church with what had befallen. In fact, the day after the disaster, there was upwards of three feet of that that had fallen into the church. Oh God, our help in ages past, our hope for years to come, and then our shelter from the stormy blast and our eternal home. When we sang our shelter from the stormy blast, I heard a word, I heard a sound erupt from the guts of that entire group of people that went, oh, like that. As if we were in the hands of a loving God that we were going to be okay ultimately, whether the roof fell, whether the rug had been pulled out from under us. All would be, oh, as Julian of Norwich would say, all will be well, all will be well no matter what befalls us. Oh God, our help in ages past, our hope for years to come, our shelter from the stormy blast. And indeed it was for us that particular day. Those are called consolations in the spiritual world. Consolations come to us. They're tailor-made. They're made for each of us. They happen and you think, oh, I've been touched by something greater than I am. And you think, where in the world did this come from and who did it? Well, I think that God has a lot to do with that and maybe his holy angels. Uh, I read words from Scripture. I read Psalm 27. I read the 139th Psalm. And I certainly read Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Well, again, at that particular moment, you could hear that sound, that connection, with juxtaposition of event, terrific event, with uh, what was going on on our insides. Uh, I also was looking desperately... For my Bible, I was going to read from Romans 8. Uh, Romans 8, at the end of Romans 8, we have a we have a word of assurance from St. Paul. And it is so strong that we use it in almost every single funeral that we do in our tradition. We give people a choice as to readings and they say, oh, I want that one. For I am absolutely convinced, says Paul, that neither life nor death well, you know, I'd never read before the nor death part. And I thought, this is really good because we're going to die in a few minutes. Neither life, nor death, nor angel, nor principality, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to do what? Separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ. What is our greatest fear as human being? It's separation. It's being disconnected, alienated sent off into outer space someplace. Ah, And here we were saying that that can't happen in God. That cannot happen. Uh, Well, I I said it from my my memory's faulty. I don't know what I said, but I think I got it right. I was looking in this. This is that message. Now, it doesn't have that old good translation. But I started reading, and I don't know why I started reading it, the first of the chapter, first of chapter 8... And see if you don't hear a juxtaposition again of word and event, a consolation, a spiritual experience. It says, with the arrival of Jesus, the Messiah, that fateful dilemma is resolved. Those who enter into God's being here for us no longer have to live under a continuous, low-lying black cloud. A new power is in operation. The spirit of a life in Christ like a strong and mighty wind has magnificently cleared the air, freeing you and me from a faded lifetime of brutal tyranny at the hands of sin and death. God went for the jugular when he sent his own son. He didn't deal with the problem as something remote and unimportant. In his son Jesus, he personally took on the human condition, entered the disordered mess of struggling humanity, and set it right once and for all. Well, I, don't know, I don't know what stronger words you could get at that particular moment. And I've just read that over and over again and thanked God for it. Let's see. I had a Sunday school teacher at Calvary Church, Osceola, Arkansas. There were only six of us in the class Uh, and we we, uh, it was the same class in the 5th grade uh, 5 year old, 6 year old, 7 year old up to senior (laughs) we tried to use the Seabury curriculum which didn't work at the time this was about 1956, 57, 58 her name was Mrs. Warner she was as mean as a rattlesnake (laughs) but thank God for If I ever see her again, I'm going to express my gratitude. She made us memorize, memorize, memorize. Memorize the Lord's Prayer. Memorize the 23rd Psalm. Memorize words from Scripture. And indeed we did. I remember a very tearful night when she said, you've got to memorize the Beatitudes. (laughs) Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Uh, uh, Blessed are those who are insulted for my sake, etc. Well, I I remembered Mrs. Warner at that moment, my brain was working overtime, I turned to Matthew 5 and I began reading this, and I was reading this when all hell broke loose. It was 9.59 a.m. Eastern Time. A sound like no sound any one of us had ever heard or ever wanted to hear again forced us to our knees. 102 floors of the North Tower of the World Trade Center imploded in on itself. And the noise, we were only 150 yards away. That's just over a football field. The noise was bam, 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 bam. And the clear story windows in the church popped out and the lights went off. And some of the people got underneath the pews as if the wooden plank of the pew would save them from a falling ceiling. I was reading these words, let's see, you have, this is, this was, this is right following the Beatitudes, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, I almost stopped reading, I thought this is inappropriate, I don't want to read this right now, I want to go out and persecute someone. And it says, so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist one who is evil. If anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And I'll end with this portion of it. That message jarred everyone in the church, especially me. Rumors were everywhere. People were whispering to each other. They would come up to me and say, do you know that all of Manhattan is under siege? They told me that the White House had been vaporized. They told me that the planes had hit the towers and that they were now over Dallas, Texas, of all places. Well, my sister at the time lived in Dallas, and I was obsessed with thinking about her. And then when someone said to me, oh, the planes, my plane has hit the Pentagon. Well, my son lived three blocks from the Pentagon at the time and I absolutely was just starstruck at that moment with fear and concern but just kept right on going as we all did the managing editor of Trinity Communications was in the congregation that day and he wrote these words to hear at that particular occasion the exhortation love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you was extraordinary In my opinion, the first strike in the war against terrorism occurred when a priest persisted in reading the Beatitudes before a shocked and dismayed congregation. Against the background of smoke seething from the wreckage of the towers, hearing Jesus' exhortation to turn the other cheek was absolutely monumental. I'm quoting him. The moment has stayed with me and will continue to do so forever That moment, he says, has taken on a life and a momentum all its own. And perhaps it will live in God's economy as our nation's very first strike against this new and insidious war against terrorism. And quite a different kind of strike than those that actually succeeded it. Thank you for listening. That's part one part two next week.